Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, a weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney. This week, we have a guest who made the life-changing decision to leave what was a dream career on paper to help women of colour to find their voice and power in the workplace. Her name is Deepa Purushothaman, and today she's going to share her story to help others step into their full agency and reimagine inclusion. But before we meet Deepa, we're going to kick off with a track by Sandigold called I'm a Lady. And this is the Benny Blanco remix. Because I'm a lady and I've got my mind made up that I'm going to smash the patriarchy. Deepa, welcome to Feminist Fridays. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's still Thursday in my part of the world, but I will pretend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I wanted to start by asking where you grew up and what your early influences were. I grew up in White House Station, New Jersey. Um, that is a, a small town. I grew up in a very small farming community uh, in New Jersey, which, which is on the east coast of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. I was born and raised, you know, roughly around there. I was born in Ohio, but we moved when I was very little. Um, and what influenced me was it was a very white town, to be honest with you. We were one of the only families of color. I was one of only four, I believe, students of color in school. And so I always had this really big sense of something was different, but I didn't know exactly what it was. We didn't really talk about race at home. My parents were immigrants from India. Um, and so there was always, I think, a little bit of confusion over where do I fit and where do I belong? And that came early. Wow, you know, we have something in common. You um, grew up in a small farming community. I've actually spent past, part of my childhood growing up on farms. Um, ah. my, dad's, my dad's a farmer. So, yes, I, I think farming communities can be great, especially when you're young. There's yes. lots of anim animals around. There's 
trees to climb. There is. There's yeah. a lot of land. Yes. We grew up across the street from a cornfield, but we had a, a creek, a, you know, like a stream in our backyard. I don't know if the word translates well, but a stream yeah. in our backyard. And um, yes, we had a lot of open space, which, which was nice to grow up around. Nice. So I understand that early in your career, you were working in your dream corporate career in a high flying role. Before we discuss your journey there and what you're doing now, I'd like to ask you what drew you to the corporate world initially? Was it a dream that you always wanted to follow or was there an aha moment? It was not a dream I wanted to follow. So I had uh, gone to graduate school um, thinking I was going to actually work in politics. And so as I worked in politics, I felt and I kept being told I needed to have a little bit of private sector experience if I wanted to move faster, if I wanted to understand and gain some skills more quickly. Um, and so I thought I would go to private sector. I would go to the big firm I ended up with for you know a year or two, and I stayed for 21 years. So it was not wow. planned at all. <laughs> yes. Oh my yes. gosh, that's a really long stint. That is a very long stint. Yes, and again, to not be planned, it was a, it felt uh, it was a surprise. Every year it was a surprise when I kept staying. So yeah. And what happened to the politics dream? You know, I think as I progressed in the private sector, as I did really well, I made partner very young. Um, I kept gaining skills and experiences. I was a consultant in, in a large firm. And so I was at a new client every few months. And so it was hard to give up what I felt like I was learning. I was around really smart people and developing skills. And when you move quickly, it's hard to walk away from that. So uh, yeah. you know, I, I, the time just flew, to be honest with you. <laughs> wow. So you were the first Indian American woman to make partner at Deloitte, which is a huge achievement. However, I understand your dream career also caused you to feel powerless as a woman of color. Can you share with us what happened and when or how you realized you were actually in a toxic environment? Yeah, I, I had a really magical career. Like I mentioned, I made partner really early. I kept felt like I felt like I was continuing to learn skills. And in my last few years before I left, and I've only left a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. So it's not it's not decades ago. It's very recent. Mm. Um, I started to get sick. So I think the stress of what was happening, living on the road. So my job entailed being in different cities every week. I lived out of a suitcase. You know, I, I worked quite a bit. Um, the lifestyle stopped being conducive and the amount of stress I think I was feeling um, really started to catch up with me. And so in my last few years uh, with a firm, uh, there was a growing question around my health. And in all candor, you know, I had a number of conversations with different doctors. Um, in addition, I had this growing question around purpose. And I think it comes from that politics background. Like I, I never thought I was going to be doing private sector work forever. So there had been a growing question around purpose. I think with the election here and everything that's happened in the United States over the last few years, I had big questions over my calling, right? Was I really fulfilling what I thought I was gonna be doing as a teenager and young woman? And so I think those things all came together to cause me to ask bigger questions about what should my contribution be in the world and am I in the right place? And is this healthy for me? I mean, at the end of the day, I think what I started to ask, and I know this now, I did not know it at the time, is I think for me a few years ago, success and health were not 
um, they didn't go together, right? I thought I could be mm. successful and I was sacrificing my health. And now I realize I have a new definition of success. My new definition of success has to come with health. I don't think you, they can be two different things. And that's a, mm. a new realization for me. Like without our health, we don't really have much, you know, we can't really do much. Yes, so we hardly have anything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know. I think it was a hard learned lesson. I think it comes from some of my childhood growing up, you know, being being the daughter of immigrants, there was a really strong, um, hard work work ethic, right? The idea was if you worked really hard, you'd be able to get ahead. And, you know, the mm. American dream was instilled in us very early. And so there was a lot of focus on production and, you know, doing more in productivity. And I think, you know, as, I, as I've done research and I met with over 500 women of color as I, you know, I wrote my book and we're going to talk about some of the work I do now, I um, came, I've come to find that I think a lot of us focus on conforming, performing and producing when you're in large corporate structures. And I think that I am realizing that's probably not healthy for any of us, especially for women of color, but for, for anybody. I mean, I think that's why we're seeing the great resignation. Most people are asking, what kind of space do we want work to take up in our lives versus, you know, most of us are working to live, it feels like, at least in the United States. And so mm. I think we're in that moment where we're asking different questions about what we want for our lives. Mm. And the great resignation, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. What yeah. can you explain? Because I haven't heard that saying before. Can you ah, um, share yes. with me what you mean? Yes, that's a big thing here in the United States. So ever since uh -huh. COVID has come into play, in the last, I would say, year, there's been this conversation that employees are leaving the workforce, especially mothers, especially women, and especially women of color. Um, and it's coming with this, you know, conversation around, you know, are people doing the jobs, you know, are they fulfilling their purpose and some of those questions, but it's also, I think for women and moms and women of color, this bigger question around how do we make our lives work? Because what has happened over the last year, at least here, and I, I think it's globally, but as a result of having to work from home and, you know, kids not necessarily being in school, like all, everything has started to mix together. Like there's no more compartmentalization of work versus home. And as a result, when a lot of moms and women are playing more caretaker roles still in families, it's caused a lot of a lot of us to ask different questions. Mm, okay. So the great yeah. So the great resignation is this this term that everyone's leaving. Everyone's resigning. I just happened to do it before it was a term, and before I think most people were starting to do it. But I think it's this real questioning of you know what do we want work to look like, and is work working for us? You know, in in, mm. in the lives that we're trying to build. You took the brave decision to step away from corporate America to find your true calling. What was that decision and experience like? How did you turn things around so that you were able yeah. to find your truth? It was really hard. I think for a lot of years, I had known that I probably wanted to leave. Um, again, mm -hmm. with that bigger question of purpose, to be honest with you, not, not because of any other grand question. I just had this growing question around, am I doing my life's work? And um, so that was a growing issue for me. I then started to get really sick and to the point that I ended up, you know, before I, I left, I took eight months off. I took a leave of absence to really focus on my health. That's how ill I was. Um, mm. And during all of that process, I felt a very heavy responsibility because I was a first woman of color, right? I was one of the only sitting in the seat. And I wondered, I felt responsible for women of color coming up around me, after me, all of it. You know, if I stepped away or if I quit or if I, you know, at, at moments thought I was 
was failing, was I failing all of them? So in an attempt to figure out if I could walk away, right, I'd sacrificed so much to get to that power seat. Um, Mm -hmm. In order to figure out if I could walk away, I started gathering other women, mostly women of color. Um, I started meeting with them one-on-one over, you know, lunch or dinner. This is when you could still do that before we were in COVID. And Mm -hmm. eventually those turned into about a dozen dinners I did across the country. And I did that with 20 or 30 women each. These were not women I knew. I would, you know, just pick a city with a friend and we would, you know, go to New York and we would solicit or call upon, you know, 20, 30 women of color and they would show up and we would be in restaurants or in in uh, rented spaces and we would just you know i thought would meet each other for an hour or two i was really networking to figure out could i leave and where would i go like what was another women of color friendly company what other industry would i want to do like what was next for me and what i found in these rooms was conversations around race at work conversations Mm. around microaggressions and racism conversations around what it was not like to navigate as a first few and only is a term that i use to describe what it's like to be a woman of color in these spaces where there's so few of us and it's really different when you're one of the only and you're trying to figure it out and what i realized is so many of these women were alone like i was we were figuring it out by ourselves and so those dinners you know showed me that i could number one walk away but number two maybe that was my work and so i ended up penning a book that came out of those dinners started with those dinners and also founding a company called information to help create safe and brave space for professional women of color. So we almost create what we did in the dinners and now virtual formats and bring people together to talk about how to advance in the workplace. Wow, that's amazing. Sounds like I would have loved to check out one of those dinners. Yes, they were very special. And I think today, right, we have more conversations, at least here, uh, around race at work in a, in a way that I, two years ago, you couldn't talk about the fact that there was racism at work. You couldn't talk about the fact that corporate America or workplaces uh, were not a meritocracy. You know, you, you could not say those words without people not you know looking at you like you had said something really wrong. We, we've progressed or we've, we've changed a lot in just the last year and a half, two years. And so I do think we're in a moment where those conversations from that we had over dinner are happening more often, but they were really rare when we had them originally. Okay, so you now have a book coming out, the first, the few, the only, How Women of Colour Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. I'd like to ask for any women of colour who may be listening to this, what key advice would you share to someone you may feel that they are working in a toxic environment, but aren't sure where to turn or what to do next. Yeah, I think the biggest thing and the reason I wrote it is I wanted women of color to know they're not alone. I think the second thing I wanted them to see is that the system does show up differently for us and it's okay to talk about that because what I found with these women started in the dinners, but I've interviewed now over 500 women of color to write the book, is that most of us wonder if it's us versus that the system is showing up differently. So let me give you an example. In the book, I talk about airplanes. And so I sat down with one of my good friends who is the VP of inclusion at Netflix. She's a a black woman. She is uh, much taller than me. And it's important because of what I'm about to tell you in the story. And she's also <laughs> a mom. 
And so as a mom, she told, she was explaining to me when I asked her about inclusion in the workplace that she thinks of airplane design and how, you know, when her kids used to be younger, she used to really struggle with the idea of putting air, you know, the luggage above her head, because when there was turbulence, it would very much stress her out. And as she was telling her story, I had to stop her because I'm five foot one and a half. So I'm, I'm not very tall. And I used to travel three cities a week when I was with Deloitte. And um, the process of getting my luggage into the overhead compartment was very stressful for me. And so we had this <laughs> amazing conversation, right, about how she's a mom and she's worried about the suitcase above her you know, head for her kids. I'm telling her I'm having a hard time and I'm actually thinking about 20 minutes before I get on the plane, the whole process of getting the luggage up, is anyone going to help me? Am I going to struggle? And maybe the five foot 10 gentleman sitting next to me isn't even thinking about either of those things. And so all three of us are having such different experiences just in the first few minutes of getting on an airplane, right? That sense of not belonging. And in that story in particular, I always used to feel like there was something wrong with me. Like I'm not tall enough. I'm not enough. And that's the same thing I think a lot of women of color feel about the workplace. Like it's something that we are deficient in or something that we need to overcompensate for. When in fact, I wish that airplane design had included more women because maybe they would have accounted for some of those things. So I think those are really the big messages. The other message that I have in the book is that you need to find the power of me and you need to find the power of we. So the power of me is you need to rewrite narratives that don't work for you and that tell us as women of color, we can't be leaders or that we you know, aren't enough or we need to work two and four times as hard. Those messages don't serve us. And so let's rewrite them into new messages that do. And that's me work. But the we work is we have to find other women of color to be in community like those dinners because it's hard to do this alone. And so that's really what I'm advising in the book. Yeah, I think community is so important, um, whether it's, you know, because you're a woman of colour, or it, it could be for other reasons, it could be um, people wanting to, you know, connect on around literature or around sports. or this, you know, I think it's a really, really important thing. It doesn't get talked about enough. And it's yeah. Really, I think the last you know, few yeah. years too, right, Sarah? I mean, I think we've learned, right, the last few years, yeah. there's such a need for community. We're all so isolated. So if we were ever going to find some, like now's the time. So Yeah. No, I remember like the first lockdown, COVID lockdown I did, I was living in Paris and I didn't have very many people that I knew there. I had some Parisian friends, um, but I had no friend, like no family, um, not, I had to, no, I kind of had to make up my own way and during that that lockdown was really tough because I didn't have anyone I was allowed to visit like I yeah. didn't have any family members I could visit um, I basically you know could only go for a walk around the block to buy groceries and yeah that that isolation you know was for three months it went on for that was really, really tough. Um, yeah. And it really made me remember a lot, or realize how important connecting with other people is and getting together. And basically what you're talking about, community, it's Absolutely. so important for our, for our well-being. Yeah, and I think as women of color, I think the problem is exactly what you're describing, that sense of isolation 
is is heavier for us in some of these corporate spaces where we are a first, first a fewer, and only. And so, you know, and most of us are working so hard. I, I didn't have a lot of women friends. I didn't have, I hardly had any women of color friends when I was doing that job, not because I wouldn't have wanted to, but I was so heads down doing the work. I was so heads down traveling and just trying to make my life work that I didn't make space or prioritize that. And that's what mm. I found with a lot of the women of color. Like we're so, you know, because I, I met some very senior, very um, accomplished women, but they were all so busy that I think they felt like they had to go it alone, that, you know, in order to be successful, they just had to keep their eye on the prize. And I think what we're talking about is that that's a really lonely way to navigate. And there's probably other ways that are more about community and doing this together. Yeah, for sure. So for those of us who may be in the workplace, or any space, and who want to be allies for women of colour, what advice would you share to help us? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing I want us to really start talking about is how, you know, systems and experiences show up differently, so how the workplace shows up differently. And I don't think we have enough conversations about that, at least in the States. There's more openness now than there ever was before to to talk about, include you know, topics like inclusion. There's more of a focus on it. But I don't think people are still understanding how it, how it's different for certain groups, and that's really the conversation we need to have. You know, to get really mm. practical and tactical, though, what I'm really encouraging, you know, and this is a very specific example, but what I'm really encouraging women of color and also allies to do is just to be prepared. So I tell women of color, you need to really have the mindset that you are probably going to encounter a racist comment or a microaggression at some point in the next day, week, or year. And when you get into that situation, like, what are you going to say? And so I encourage women of color to have three things ready when, you know, just to be prepared when someone says something is so often we are caught flat footed, right? And we're so confused and overtaken by emotion when someone says something that's either bad or inappropriate. So I tell women of color, have a comment like, you know, if something is just said that is offensive to you, what you just said really hurt me. You know, we need to pause this meeting because of what was just said is really startling, or I'm going to need five minutes. I need to, I need to think about what was just said. You know, it could be whatever you want it to be, but three things. And I share that when you ask your ally question, because I'm also realizing I want allies to have those same three things prepared because so often allies are witness to, you know, microaggressions or to racist comments or actions, and they can help us. Like, this is not all upon um, groups that are underrepresented to, to change culture. We have to do it together. So I want allies to also have commentary. So if they see something or, you know, hear something, they can say, I think what you just said may not have landed as you think it should, right? I think what was just said is a problem. We should probably stop this meeting and talk about what was just said. They could do that too. And so I think it's being being prepared and being ready to help change culture. Mm, that's such a really, it's such a great suggestion to have things prepared to say because you're right, you know, um, things will come up. They inevitably do. But it's really great to kind of prepare or think through what you want to say because sometimes, you know, when you're caught in the moment, you yeah, you, you might get tongue-tied, you might just say the first thing that comes to mind. But um, I love that strategy. I'm going to use it myself for yes, sure. Yes, please. I'm an ally. I'm an ally. Yes, I'm definitely yes. going to be doing it. Yeah, but you know, just, I think I think you're so right. Like we just we don't we don't talk enough about how to how to deal with those situations, right? I think most of us were raised to hope that those things go away, right? That they that they will happen so far and few between. 
but they happen more often than we like to admit. So I just think we have to be prepared and we have to trust our gut. Like if something doesn't feel right when someone has just said something, I tell I tell people to take 10 minutes or I take 10 minutes, you know, it's gonna be different for everybody. I no longer react to everything that someone says to me that's offensive. I'll wait 10 minutes and if I'm still bothered, then I will say something, right? Like you can start to get comfortable practicing some of these things because they will happen. Like you said, we just need to be prepared. Mm. It reminds me this. There was a time in my career where I just landed uh, a very senior kind of communications marketing role in a startup. So a startup that had a lot of money and I was, you know, in charge of building a team um, and hiring other people. And I interviewed this young woman who was Muslim and was wearing a headscarf. Um, and I thought that she would have been, you know, she seemed great. It was for an assistant role. Um, but one of the other directors of the company, when she was leaving, kind of gave me like a knowing wink and sort of said something along the lines of, oh, you know, she wouldn't quite fit in here. Yep. And I was so disgusted yep. that I basically just packed my stuff, got up and said, goodbye, I'm resigning. I just wow. walked out of that company. Yeah. That says a lot about yeah. you though, Sarah, because not everybody does that, right? Not everybody um, takes action. I wish more people did that, to be honest with you. Yeah, it was, yeah. And there's definitely, I've never regretted doing that because I wouldn't, you know, just for me, I couldn't be in, in an environment where that kind of thing was permitted, that kind of comment and it was one of the directors like it, it, you know a senior director should not be speaking like that and I think they felt really bad when I explained this is what caused me to resign they felt really bad and tried to kind of cover it up and make up for it but I was I'd made up my mind um, yeah. and I think I, I then I've worked in not-for-profit sector for a large part of my career I think that was one of the trigger points that got me working in the not-for-profit sector because I was like, I think I'm done with corporate, corporate yeah, world Yeah, no, now. I can only imagine. But I mean, I also think, you know, the story you're sharing, I want to believe it's uncommon, but I have 500 women's stories, right, to, to, yeah. show, to tell you it's not. And the challenge is, I do think that most of these companies, most of workplaces, it's not just corporate, by the way, there are ways of behaving, there are ways of advancing, there are cultural norms that actually, you know, I think unconsciously and consciously require us to conform in different ways. And that's really what this book and my work is about, that there is a lot of pressure to conform that I think women of color don't understand. And so when I met with a lot of these senior women of color, what they would say to me as, you know, we were going deep into these interviews is they were admitting that they thought, you know, I will maybe give up parts of myself, I will sand my edges, or I will sacrifice some of the things that maybe are not super critical to who I am, but, you know, I'll, I'll let them go while I'm rising. And once I get to the seat, I will do it my way. And I heard over and over and over again from these senior women who were sitting in these power seats that they didn't feel powerful once they were in the seat because they'd sacrificed so much and that they had thought they would do it their way once they were there. And in fact, there was more pressure to conform and behave and toe the line once they were in the seat. And so I think it's, I think that's the conversation or that's really what I'm asking women of color and probably everybody to really think about. How much do you conform? How much do you give up? Because you think it's the right thing to do and the right way to get ahead. And what does that do to us? And you know, how much does that ask us to give up parts of ourselves? And is that, is that really the culture that we're trying to build? 
So you speak a lot about how to decide if you're in a toxic environment. For those listeners who might not identify as being a woman of colour, but who also feel powerless in the workplace and who are considering leaving their role, what learnings can you share? Yeah, I spoke to a lot of a lot of people. And again, I'm speaking about women of color, but a lot of you're right. A lot of what I found applies to everybody and applies to white men as much as it does to women of color or other groups. I think that we're in a moment where people are realizing that they can make different choices. So if you're finding yourself in a toxic work environment, let's just say people aren't respectful of your time or your boundaries, or they're asking you to do extra things that are beyond your job description, or there's just a culture of disrespect. I think it's okay to pick up your head and look around, you know, what I really encourage people to do is to really, to really take a look at the culture you're in and try and ask for what you need. If you're asking, you know, for advancement or you don't feel like you're, you know, getting opportunities that you really want to grow yourself. And you've tried a few times to speak to your manager. You've tried a few times to speak to, you know, people around your manager. I think it's okay to start looking around and really understanding what's out there. You know, I got advice early in my career from a senior your partner who said every few years you should go um, apply for jobs just to see your worth on the market and he said I've done that for 20 years I've always stayed but it helped me you know know that my that I had options and there's power in that I think we're in a moment now, right, where people probably move more quickly than they ever used to. Like no one stays like I did at 20 years at one company. But I think just knowing you have options is power. Um, mm. And if you're not with working with people that make you feel whole and, and, and happy and it feels toxic, trust your gut and ask different questions. You know, go explore. Ask people at other companies what it's like. Ask your friends. Ask ask people on, you know, on different platforms. I, you know, in, in the States, we use a lot of LinkedIn to ask questions like that like pay attention to survey companies where they rate company cultures like there are resources now where you can really figure out you know if your company does have that feeling of it's not working or it's toxic try and find other places and do your research to find out like you know what other what other what else is out there and what else you know what other cultures might actually work for you I think that's really great advice and I think you know the the whole process of looking for a job can be a little bit painful, a little bit not so fun. But I really like how you frame it as an opportunity to know your worth because it really is, you know. When you're putting your your career and your aspirations and things down on paper, it's totally an opportunity to go, okay, you know, I'm, I'm actually worth quite a big deal. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's it's a great way to kind of get that, affirmed i think yeah absolutely i mean we spend so much time working it's really Mm. where you know outside of our families and maybe our children like where we get our greatest value and where we spend most of our time and so i think it's okay to be selfish about it and ask different questions and you know not everybody that i interviewed was able to leave the jobs they were in some had to stay for financial reasons some had to stay for other reasons but i think even if you're in a situation that doesn't feel great you can start to dream about what your ideal job you know, would look like so that when you are in a position that you can stay or move, that you know where you're going. I think so many of us have been taught to be grateful and to be thankful, especially amongst women of color, to be grateful and thankful, you know, for the the, the opportunities we're given. And I think we're in a moment where we're saying like, we don't, we don't want to just be grateful anymore. We want to be in cultures where we're thriving and it's okay for us to ask for that and, and to demand that. Absolutely. 
So, as this is a feminist radio segment and podcast, I'd like to ask how feminism has been a part of your journey. Yeah, it's a deep part of my journey. I, I think I used ah. to call my feminist when I was a little girl. You know, it's it was it's always been there. Um, I, you know, again, I, I think I shared, I grew up in an immigrant family where my parents uh, came over from India and, you know, there's a lot of patriarchy. There is a lot of thoughts around the place of women in, in Indian culture. And although, you know, my parents were very liberal on a lot of things, it was a big debate in our house all the time. Um, I remember being little and my dad saying he had two daughters. And so if I had a boy, you know, he would cut the grass or he would go do this or go do that. And that used to make me go cut the grass. That used to make me go do a lot of things because I had this attitude of I'll show you, you know. And so I think early on, you know, I don't love that that was the motivation, but it also did teach me like there's no such thing as gender roles and there, you know, I can do anything that I put my mind to. And I also uh, was on a lot of sports teams. So I was the only girl on the boys uh, soccer, we call it here, you know, football. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, so at four years old, you know, all the way up till my, you know, 20s, I was one of the only girls, if not the only girl on the team. And so again, that sense of, you know, I don't have to adhere to, um, you know, because I'm a girl, I can't do certain things was always there from early childhood. And so I think, you know, I think I was an early feminist before I necessarily knew what it, what the term meant, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, so many people that I speak to have that sort of same shared experience of they grew up being a feminist, but didn't actually realize they were until later on, um, which says a lot about feminism. It's something that um, it's really about equality to me. Um, and if you are someone who's passionate about equality, then chances are you're probably also a feminist. I completely Uh agree. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, I think people sometimes struggle with the term because sometimes it can, you know, conjure up, you know, extreme ideas in their head. I have no problem with it. I love the term. I've called myself that for ever since I was a teenager and I knew what the term meant, but I think it probably started earlier than that. So. So I've got one final question. Where can my listeners find you, follow you, and connect with you if they want to support the amazing work that you're doing? So feel free to plug your website, social media profiles, and anything else you'd like to hear. Okay, perfect. Yes, so uh, you can find everything about me on my website, and it's Deepa, D-E-E-P-A, P-U-R-U.com. Information about the book is there. The book just came out. So all the information about the book Ooh. is there. I'm Yeah, I'm on my book tour now. Um, and so all the information about events, I just did a TED event today, uh, recording Amazing. something for them. So all that information is there. And also about the company. So information is a community for women of color. And we have, we have uh, uh, access and, and entry into that as well. So everything that I'm doing is there. And then all my social handles are also connected there. I'm mostly under Deepa Peru everywhere. So yes. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm so impressed with the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I have to tell you, my husband is from Melbourne. So I uh, Ah. I told him I was doing this, so he was very excited. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh, that's great. Well, hello, Melbourne husband, and thank you for (laughs) allowing your wife to join the segment today. (laughs) 
Well, we have served you another gender-inclusive episode of Feminist Fridays for this week. But before you head off, here's a new release by Mo called Wheelspin. See you next time for another guest who is smashing the patriarchy. We'll spend all night Flashes of your eyes Spinning in my mind We'll spend all night Someday I will find my way back to you From the other side Baby, my truck is on fire Fire, I let the shit burn Burn.